Welcome to the Meb Faber Show, where the focus is on helping you grow and preserve your wealth. Join us as we discuss the craft of investing and uncover new and profitable ideas, all to help you grow wealthier and wiser. Better investing starts here. Meb Faber is the co-founder and chief investment officer at Cambria Investment Management. Due to industry regulations, he will not discuss any of Cambria's funds on this podcast. All opinions expressed by podcast participants are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of Cambria Investment Management or its affiliates. For more information, visit cambriainvestments.com. Hello, podcast listeners. It is officially fall time, though it's still 70 degrees here in Los Angeles. So I thought we'd do a radio show catch up before we start ticking off all the Awesome guests we have scheduled for the next few months. Jeff, welcome. What's happening? I'm a little weary. I'm still on Icelandic time. Yeah, we're gonna have to keep this podcast short because, frankly, I've seen you look far better before. I don't. Li- I don't like the way this is going down right now. I'm. I'm not a morning person. I've been up since four, so it's a little odd for me. But uh, it was a great trip. Had a lot of fun. Other than the fact that beers cost ten to fifteen dollars there, which is crazy. But a really fun trip. Caught a bunch of fish with my brother. What'd There's, you catch? It's trout mostly. They have salmon too, but it's it's kind of late in the year. But I did see the Northern Lights my first day there in town too, which is a little harder. Are you sure that wasn't after just seven or eight fifteen dollar beers? No, I. Well, th- that's kind of a great way to keep you from behaving poorly. Is they put a price tag on the beers. We we actually met up with a couple of podcast listeners. If you guys are listening, hello and. No, I, I was like a 10-year-old child. I was I was so excited. I just kind of yelped and to my brother. I said, Wayne, look, it's Northern Lights. He said, that, that's a jet trail. I'm like, really? It's green. And then it took up like the whole sky. It's the coolest thing. <laughs> nice. Any, uh, any other highlights? You know, beautiful country. I mean, there's only like 300,000 people there. And it would have been really fun to, to be over there when they were when they beat England in the World Cup. You remember they made like a little run there. When was that? Within the last year or whatever the last, well, I don't know, whatever the last World Cup was, maybe a couple years ago. I don't know. Anyway, but you know, Iceland is such a, it was really one of the just kind of poster childs for the last crisis. If you remember, I don't, I don't know how much you recall, but they, all three of their banks failed, you know, the major banks. And there were so many challenges, but it seems like it's boom times again. I mean, there, there are a lot of cranes, a lot of activity, a lot of tourism, you know, but I'd love to get off the beaten path. So we spent a lot of time kind of in the back country, which for Iceland is, it's kind of like Alaska. It's pretty, pretty easy. You get about an hour out of town and it feels like you're on the moon. How long ago was the bust? It would have been during the global financial crisis. Okay. Okay. So I was thinking about Cyprus. I wonder if there's any parallels you can draw there. No, I mean, it, it was, it was a number of issues. Um, one, you know, on, on different levels, it was, uh, they had trouble with a lot of the derivatives. They had trouble, the banks did with, you know, a lot of people, and this feels a little more foreign for American investors, but a lot of people globally would borrow in other currencies, you know, so, so essentially becoming currency traders. And then when, when things go against them, it can get really painful quick. So the Corona went down by like 50% in the crisis. So it's come back up since then, but, but, but yeah, it was, but it's funny, you know, I did the prices and it's, it's such a great example of just capitalism is that it totally changes people's behavior. So all the Icelanders go to happy hour because that's when the prices are half off. And as soon as happy hour over, gone. It's ghost town. Yeah. And uh, well, this is all tourists. My, my biggest regret from the trip was 
there was a Alice in Chains cover band playing, which I would have loved to have seen, but missed it, sadly. All in all, good times. Really fun trip. We're going to need to do a uh, episode on currencies one of these days. We get enough write-ins from listeners sure. who are outside the U.S. who have questions about that. Sure. I feel like enough U.S. listeners don't have as much of a, an awareness of uh, the Currencies are tough for a lot of people. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's an area that I think most people understand on a very sort of surface level. But but once you kind of dig past that, it it, it gets confusing quick. What's well, interesting now? Too. I, I actually, wrote, by the way, not to interrupt. I I had written a PDF. We never even talked about this. I wrote a white paper on currencies, and never published it, partially because of that. I, th- I think a lot of people well, I don't remember don't really care one. why I haven't told you about it. It's <laughs> pre Jeff, PJ. You know, and, and it's about currency strategies, and it's actually one of our first filings was a currency strategy ETF, and you can come up with some pretty basic strategies, just same you would with equities, carry trend, value. But I, I just, I don't know if anyone cares. Well, I just read an article this morning about uh, how the US dollar might be entering a, a, a bear. Do you have any thoughts on that? Do you care at all? I mean, I feel, no, like, I mean, I feel on, like you just looked at trend and valuation metrics and just sort of don't even really worry about macro stuff. I mean, if like you look that. at those two, it's clearly on the valuation metrics, at least from the beginning of the year, it's less so now, you know, overvalued to, to many pairs, but the trend has been up. And on top of that, the US is one of the higher yielding developed market countries, currencies, the, the the bonds yield over 2%. So for a lot of countries in the developed world that yield half a percent or zero or negative, you know, it's a very attractive currency, right? Yeah. It's so. relative valuation. Mm-hmm. All right, well, let's do this here. I really do not want to keep you long today. I, uh, I sense the fatigue. So we're going to knock through a few uh, listener questions here. Thanks for everybody for writing in. We appreciate um, you guys for giving us your time and thoughts. So let's knock out a few and then get you out of here. The first actually is on bonds. And it says, uh, on your podcast, you've discussed a few times that bonds can face significant drawdowns. I believe you referenced the biggest one being 26%. But because of the way bonds work, is it the case that bond ETFs guarantee a positive return over time, regardless of changes to interest rates, since each, each bond within an ETF would individually have a guaranteed positive return, assuming held to maturity and no default. The reader, I think, is, is kind of conflating a few different ideas. One is that the way that most bond funds are structured is that they are a constant sort of maturity. So if you buy a 10-year U.S. government bond fund, it's always targeting 10 years. So it'll continually rebalance to always be a 10-year bond fund. So a year from now, it's not a nine-year U.S. Treasury fund, which is what would happen if somebody bought the individual bond. There are bond ETFs that do that, you know, that, that it just rolls down. So it's kind of just know what you own. But talking about drawdowns, you know, we did a, a piece that reminded me of way back in 2011. And it was the going off a quote, which I think I attribute to Mark Yusko. I don't know if he was the first one to say it, but but he says, um, you know, investing is the only area when things go on sale, people run out of the store. So talking about drawdowns. And, you know, we, we did a whole long post on, on bond drawdowns. And then we did another follow-up in 2013. We said, is Gunlock right? Have bonds bottom? Because he was calling for a, um, a rise in interest rates. And so we were looking at historical drawdowns in both the 10-year and the 30-year. And right, like you mentioned, the, the 10-year usually only sees pretty moderate declines, as you would expect. Bonds, people, you know, see them as, as less risky. But the, the real risk in bonds is actually real drawdowns, so not nominal ones. So bonds on that level have like a 50% drawdown because inflation eats away. And the same thing in the in UK, it's actually higher. I think their bonds had like a 70% drawdown at one point. 
And so bonds, that's really their enemy is, is inflation. So, but, but we looked at, for example, in the US, what happened when you invested in bonds during various drawdown buckets. So if you, you know, invested in 10 year in all periods or when it was down zero to 5%, five, 10%, 10 to 15%, you know, and this is kind of obvious for any mean reversion strategy where it's backward looking is that if you invested when it was down, you know, five or 10%, future one year returns were higher. So it's hard to turn that into a strategy. Maybe listeners, you could, if you want to go play around the data, but you could certainly add more exposure. You know, if, if bonds were down 15% on the 10 year, you know, you could buy one year calls or something on bonds or interest rates. There's a lot of different ideas there, but the course, the challenge is the largest drawdown is always in your future. So there's nothing that's really keeping bonds from having a 30%. Right. You know, well, I mean, how would you balance really the idea of they're down 5, 10, 15%? And so therefore you're going to over rebalance into them because of the assumption of reversion to the mean versus they're trending down. There's no reason they're going to stop trending down. Yeah. I, I don't know. I don't have a good answer to that. By the way, you mentioned inflation a moment ago. I'm going to catch you by surprise on this one. I, I don't have an answer. I would imagine you may not either. But years ago, in terms of QE, you know, there's all that money being printed and all these calls about massive inflation based upon that. And all seemed to kind of just like slip aside, never really went anywhere. Do you have any thoughts on when that might appear or raise its head? I mean, what happened to all that? I mean, I think the phrase the, to what to look at would be called the Japan playbook where, you know, this is a very similar playbook to what happened in Japan. In Japan, its interest rates have sat, it, you know, haven't gone up for 20 plus years. And so if you look back at history, that was kind of the consensus, right? I mean, every single, I mean, really famous managers too, calling for, you know, hyperinflation. So when everyone's of a certain opinion, lining up on one side of the market, it's, it's rare that it usually happens that way. But you never know. I mean, you have a lot of competing forces. You have a lot of deflationary forces of technology that are just sending prices down and, and the deflationary, you know, robotics revolution, right? So the, the competing forces, I, I don't know. I mean, but in, in inflation is never, again, we, we talk about this when we're talking about hedge funds, where we say, you know, the term hedge fund is can mean a thousand different things. So it's kind of a weird blanket term. Same thing for inflation. So you have you know, tuition and textbook inflation that's still crazy and medical costs. On the other side, you know, TV, te buying televisions is huge deflation. So it's not just one thing. And, and a rich person or someone with a lot of assets and high expenditures has a totally different inflation basket than someone who doesn't have a lot of salary and assets, right? So for that person, it's, it's rent and food. And for a super wealthy person, it's not. It's other things. Yeah, it hits people differently. I remember reading some anecdote about how somebody was talking about inflation and it wasn't showing up in like the Department of Labor's figures of that. And they, whoever was responding, said something to the effect of, well, look at uh, computers. You're know, getting three times the storage now and a half of the price. And the guy's response was, well, I can't eat my computer for dinner. Hmm. Yeah. New good business idea, edible computers. <laughs> I feel like I read something on this topic a while ago about pointing towards the velocity of money as being a culprit in all this, that you know there was all this new creation of uh, new dollars, but it was in a sense sort of locked behind the banks and it wasn't really out there floating around, which was the main reason why we hadn't seen the effect in the broader economy of the market or whatnot. I have no idea, but it'd be interesting. Yeah. All right, let's move on here. Next question. Trend. 
I've heard that equal weight beats market cap because it sells the expensive stocks and buys the cheaper ones. I've also heard that most of the stock market gains over time are because a small percentage of are due to a small percentage of companies. So my question is, why does selling the winners down to equal weight and buying the lower performing stocks beat just letting the winners run? I get the thought of selling expensive and buying cheap, but if the winners give most of the returns, it seems that selling them doesn't make sense, even if they're slightly more expensive. I don't think the ideas are in conflict. So the concept of equal weighting beating market cap weighting by a little bit, you just end up with a value tilt, you know, and that's it. And and market cap often, so you, you have a big winner. By the time it gets to be a big winner, it's then gets the highest weight. It didn't have the highest weight in the beginning. So it the reason it got to the highest weight is because it went up so much. And the reason and then now it's likely at a higher valuation. So it's not a bad methodology. I mean, it's the S&P 500 or any market cap index, basically. But historically, having a value tilt is a superior method. Not always, but so equal weighting gives you kind of unintentionally a slight value tilt because you're pairing back historically a lot of the higher, the more expensive companies. Is there any clue how much potential money is left on the table if you're selling these highly valued ones because you want to rotate out and prevent a drawdown, but then you know they keep rising XYZ percent? Well, it's not it's not money left on the table because the equal weight outperforms. So it does outperform. Yes, okay. it outperforms market cap weight. Almost any weighting outperforms market cap weighting. You could throw darts at a wall and it outperforms market cap weighting because market cap has a tendency to overweight expensive securities or more expensive than the rest of the basket. It sounds contradictory, but it's not. I mean, it's, it's actually a lot simpler, I think, than you think it is. It's, that's just the, the nature of market cap investing. All right. On trend following, there was a uh, piece from uh, AQR I want to get your take on it really fast. It says, uh, despite a century of very strong performance of trend following investing and the continued presence of biases and interventions, the strategy's expected return going forward may nonetheless be hurt by several factors. Increased assets under management in the strategy, high fees, and higher correlations across markets. So what's your take on those three, in particular, the correlation element? Well, the first two I, I agree with, certainly. I mean, assets in general usually degrades a strategy. Two, fees are an obvious one. So that's simple, though. Charge less or invest in something that, that doesn't charge as much. And then lastly, correlations. I mean, correlations, we never assume that they're stable. They kind of bounce around all over. It makes sense that equity markets in general have become more correlated as globalization is, is taken hold. But there's no reason for those to continue to be correlated to bonds in Australia versus wheat prices versus, you know, all these other things, right? If you look back at various bear markets and think about correlations, you know, one of the reasons 2008 surprised so many people was that people had assumed that a lot of these correlations were stable and, you know, that, hey, these commodities in real estate, which diversified me in 2000, 2003 bear market is going to protect me again. Well, no. You know, we talk about this in our tail risk white paper, which hopefully listeners will be out by the time this gets published. It's taken forever. But we look at alternative assets in the 10 worst U.S. stock market months. So on average, what do we take that paper back to the 80s? So back to the 80s, the average of the 10 worst S&P months is minus 10% ish, with the worst, of course, being October 1987, which was like minus 20. 
And by the way, if you take that all the way back to 1900, the average of the worst 10 months is minus 20 per month. Then think about that. Think about next month, October being minus 20. Most people can't fathom that, right? Anyway, but we look at other asset classes and some are good some of the time. So like gold, for example, is pretty good, but it's not, you can't count on it. I think one of the months it was down like 16%. So you can't count on it. it certainly T-bills, you, you can for the most part count on. And bonds usually are good, but other asset classes like commodities and REITs certainly would not be because typically they're, they're equities anyway, right? So, but commodities is kind of a, you know, who knows? So I think that's what surprised a lot of people in 2008 because they were hoping that a portfolio. So, so looking at a lot of these correlations, we don't assume any sort of stability, but I don't think that there's evidence that markets are more correlated now than they were before. Yeah. I mean, that you was, that was the know. thing that got my attention was, was the implication that somehow because everything is more digitized now, is, is it easier to trade any sort of market? Does that and mean correlations are? They, they may have mentioned this in the paper, but. I don't recall. This is a great paper, and we'll post it in the show notes on, on trend following. AQR takes uh, a basic trend following methodology back 100 years. You know, it's a really cool paper. It shows that it works pretty much in every decade. One of the biggest challenges for that portfolio right now, which is traditionally it uses futures, long and short, and the rest of the portfolio sits in T-bills or something very similar to it. Well, that collateral yield, which is 90% of the portfolio, used to earn 6% a year. Now it owns, earns 20 basis points. And a lot of people don't talk about that. They don't realize that it's something like half of managed futures and to it as an extension commodities, it's like half of their returns are due to collateral yield. So, and same thing for hedge funds. Hedge funds, all these strategies had a massive tailwind of inflation and risk-free rates being much higher than they are today. And so this also goes along with fees. You know, a 1% or 2% fee didn't matter nearly as much when inflation was at 6%, you know, and markets were not on nominal levels doing 10, 15% returns and bonds were doing 8%, right? But now that 1% fee in a world of, you know, 1% inflation is a much, much, much bigger slice of your returns than it was before. And so that's actually a bigger, a much bigger headwind for managed futures than I think the others are. Yeah. Well, the, the other one being increased assets under management and the strategy, I, I don't necessarily think that that's entirely accurate, is it? Have you Can you point towards uh, a marked increase in the amount of AUM that's in managed futures? Well, I mean, I, no, because like, look, I mean, managed futures for a year like 08, monster year, and most of the funds were up 20, 30, 40%, right? Since then, they've struggled and had some good years, but mostly has been kind of struggling. You know, is that because of AUM? I, I, don't, I don't think so. I mean, they all do kind of the same thing, really. Anyway, I, it's TBD in general. More more assets is is bad for any strategy. It seems like the basic nature of, of trend following in general, with the behavioral issues, sort of acts as a built-in governor and how much money is going to flow into those strategies anyway, because it's just anti-human uh, nature in a sense. Yeah. All right. Uh, next question here. So last week you uh, read us your most recent white paper on um, you know the dividend investing strategy that doesn't use dividends. Um, and we got some questions about that. One idea was that a lot of people do rely on these dividend payments. And it made me want to delve into a little bit deeper into the idea of creating a synthetic dividend by selling some portion of the actual stock versus just sitting around and, and waiting for the uh, dividend payment to come. Um, 
you know, maybe you can discuss some of the factors that would need to be considered trading costs, uh, different tax treatments, and the reality that if you're forced to sell some of the uh, underlying investment, you might be selling when uh, markets are in the gutter. You're not getting great prices on it. Well, then, you would. So, I mean, the synthetic dividend, I mean, by the way, Vanguard just put out a great piece this spring, which I hadn't seen yet, which basically agrees with everything we said in the paper. Not to the extent which we said it, but but they have to be careful because they have lots of dividend funds. Yeah, <laughs> so yeah. they, they would be careful to shoot themselves in the foot. Anyway, I mean, creating a set of, you would just create this synthetic dividend the exact same way and on the time frame that you had the regular dividends. You do it quarterly. So it's the exact same thing. You just sell 4% of the chopped up by four. So 1% of your holding per quarter, if you want a 4% yield, and it's the same thing. Why do you think that's so prohibitive to people from, it just feels different for some reason? Because people in their mind think they're getting like an extra check. Like they, they have this dream of passive income and they think they're literally getting a check in the mail. I don't think a lot of, I mean, all the investors listening to this obviously understand this, that a dividend is just, you know, returning some capital of the company. And so the stock price goes down by the amount that the dividend. But I think some investors in general think they're like getting some like extra bonus check, like the same way you'd get a bonus at work, right? So it has the same feeling of that. You know, you're getting a check each quarter, but it takes a long time for, I think, a lot of, you know, ingrained beliefs to change. And in our paper, it's really, really hard to argue with. I mean, the data is the data, and it shows that value is a much better approach historically than dividends is. What's interesting, you know, in, in the paper, which will come out, you know, you reference the psychological impact and you make the comparison to the Coke and Pepsi taste test challenge and how you know, people blind preferred Pepsi, but there's the great brand attached to Coke. Well, we're going to do an incredible real-time, real world experiment with this, which is we'll be launching these funds that you know, kind of echo this methodology. So we'll see if anybody cares when, you know, there's something like 500 dividend ETFs and mutual funds that manage in the hundreds of billions. So we'll see. We'll see. I say, are you investors really evidence-based in your taxable accounts? Or, you know, do you just like the dividend story? I have a pretty good idea who's going to win. But eventually, <laughs> hopefully five, 10 years from now, people will come around to our side. I don't know. But it's interesting. Like if you look at, you know, dividends, like in the UK, I think they're taxed at higher rates than capital gains. So it's not uniform everywhere, but in general, it creates, the good news is it creates inefficiencies to which we can then take advantage of. Well, speaking of investor psychology, that kind of segues into an article, which is interesting to discuss. Schiller just put out a piece in New York Times uh, titled, Mass Psychology Supports the Pricey Stock Market. You want to give us a quick recap of what it is? And your Yeah, I mean, thoughts? he basically said... You know, look, stocks are expensive. There's no question about that. I mean, every valuation indicator we look at says stocks are expensive. So there's no question. I don't know how you could really argue that. The only argument people make is they're better than bonds, though, which really isn't an argument. They can both <laughs> they can both lose money in that case. But Schiller says, look, if you look back at prior peaks, there was kind of like a euphoric environment, but there was also this awareness of it being a bubble. There was a lot of talk. And he's like, I just look around and it seems like people are a little more calm about this. And I agree with that. If you look at a lot of the sentiment surveys, particularly AI, you don't see the euphoria you would normally see with like this sort of market. You know, I, I've, been, I've been calling it the Jay Cutler bull market for the last few years. And for people that don't know, Jay Cutler is this kind of like melancholy 
quarterback for the Dolphins now and doesn't show a lot of emotion. Just in general, looks like he would rather be at home watching The Simpsons than playing football, right? And so it's like it's, it's called the Jay Cutler bull market where like no one really seems to care. And maybe they've just been damaged by the last two bulls. So, but but the question is, does it require euphoria to be a bubble? And I don't think so. And does it require, you know, this awareness of a bubble, you know, for it to do poorly or crash? And no, I don't think so either. I think once market starts to decline, it's kind of like a musical chairs, you know, then people say, oh, shoot, I know the market's expensive and it didn't matter for the past few years. But now that it's starting to decline, it does matter. I'm going to be the first person out. So it could be a really strong, hard move in that scenario. You are seeing the euphoria in other places. Cryptocurrencies, obviously. I, I retweeted a Jamie Foxx, the actor and musician tweet, where he's promoting one of these uh, initial coin offerings that's like a clone of Robin Hood, the brokerage. And you know, now that you have Jamie Foxx and Paris Hilton and Floyd Mayweather, all of these you know, celebrities promoting these scams. And I'm confident saying that a lot, most of these are scams. I'll, I'll take the other Jamie, Jamie Dimon, uh, recently, you know, basically said, you know, it's Bitcoin's a fraud. I won't go that far, but, but I, I will say it, it's, it's going to be a bloodbath for a lot of these offerings for people. I think, I think many, many people will lose 100% of their money in them. Well, back to the uh, equity valuations and the potential for an equity bubble and the fact that we are not in a sort of mania right now. Well, Schiller's article seems to be based upon an implication that the, the broader U.S. equity market is still largely mom and pop investors. But I've read stuff that a lot of the mom and pops sold in you know '09 and did not put their money back in the same way. So, well, there, there's the there's the percent of you know, your portfolio that's in equities. And that's like one of the best predictors of future returns has, has been historically, right? When people have the majority of their portfolio in equities usually has pretty low returns going forward and vice versa. But that's just because it expands and contracts and people as on aggregate, it becomes more and less of their portfolios, right? So historically, that's been a wonderful timing tool that also shows that future returns will be low. But yeah, I mean, I certainly don't feel the euphoria. I mean, if to the extent that people are invest, asking me investment questions that are friends, it's it's literally almost always about cryptocurrencies now. It's not about stocks. How much of, of the market these days is mom and pops investing and doing their own thing versus larger institutional dollars that are computerized trading and, and things of that nature? You know, I mean, it, it's hard to put an exact estimate on your specific question. You can certainly, it's very easy to come up with a, pie chart of certain institutions and breakdown of who owns what, like you can, we'll, we'll post to the show notes. I don't remember the exact number, so I don't want to misstate it, but you know, David Rosenberg had a great quote when he, he was about five years ago, he's talking about bonds and everyone's talking about the bond bubble, bond bubble, bond bubble. And he's like, you know, it's really hard to have, have a call an asset boom, a bubble when it's universally hated. And at that time, like everyone just hated bonds, but they're like, it's a bubble, you know? And so it's, it's similar in, in the sense that stocks aren't universally loved. You know, it's this, the, the Jay Cutler bull market, but it's not, you know, there's no euphoria. But I don't know that euphoria is a prerequisite. Like it's not a, you have to have euphoria 
and leverage for everything to come crashing down. I don't think you need it at all, yeah. but I think the basis of this article is sort of built around the emotional impact of, of fear and what happens when things begin to go south and you want to get out first. But I think my question really is, well, is this the same market as it was 10 years ago in the sense where it has as much vulnerability to that fear element or have we become more invested via institutional dollars because the mom and pops aren't quite as in there. So there's less of an opportunity for that fear to ripple through the entire market to take it down. I don't know. Everyone hates losing money, you know, it, and it gets exponentially worse the worse it gets. But I don't know that the competing forces of institutions that theoretically are the smart money that it will rebalance, you know, at the more it goes down versus individuals that won't. Like, I, I don't I don't know that those competing forces cancel each other out, really. I mean, it didn't stop the market from going down 50% in the last two bear markets. So who knows? But I will say that it has been a great feeling to see, you know, global CAPE ratios. People, you know, love to use the U.S. as an example of something that, as an example of somehow CAPE doesn't work. It's worked fantastic the past handful of years on a global scale. And we talk about that a lot, where a lot of the cheap stuff has been going up and continuing to outperform. And, and, and the cheap bucket this year and last year has printed, I think, 20% plus returns each year. And it's still half, uh, or I think it's almost a third the valuation of US. So it could, ha- it could have many years of, you know, really the next decade of outperformance. But it feels good to be to be on the right side of this. Whereas, you know, when we originally published Global Value and I was giving speeches on it in 2014, it was still on the way down. <laughs> it reminds know, me of uh, Jason Sue with his podcast when he was saying those guys got into uh, EM like maybe two or three years early yeah. and just had to sit through tons of calls with clients who were quite, <laughs> you know, unhappy with returns. And yeah. Where well, the egg, the egg eventually washes off, but it's it's kind of nice to be able to say, hey, look, here's here's the framework here's the layout and then eventually it transpires you know that's that was kind of pretty cool but it didn't have to happen that way there's nothing that really stopped those countries from getting halved again they easily could have gone down to it you know but but it was one of the lowest group valuations we've seen in decades for that bucket do you see anything right now on your radar i mean em has climbed it's still got uh, more to go for sure but as you look at sort of the global opportunity set, not just equities, but whatever investment, do you see something that's sort of becoming the next EM right now in terms of an attractive investment for you personally? There's an area that I love that I've never invested in. We would love to launch a fund there, but you, can't, you could, I don't think you could ever do an ETF, which is catastrophe bonds, which investors, if you're not familiar, is basically municipalities or countries will you know, issue these and investors can invest in them where they get a nice fat yield. And historically, it's been higher. Uh, I think the main website is Artemis. Yes, yeah, no, right. the, the tracks in Swiss Re, a lot of research out there. But basically, you get a big fat return. And you know, they'll issue them on the classic would be like J- Japan tsunami risk or California earthquake or Florida hurricane, right? And so you could put together a portfolio of all these catastrophe bonds. I mean, it correlates to nothing. Like that's your perfect asset class, right? The problem is, of course, if you, you know, you get this fat yield, and then if it the actual event happens and you have a payout, you know, you could lose all your money in the bond, or it's a it's not black swan because you know it's coming eventually. And, and Warren Buffett used to do a ton here, but this kind of super catastrophic risk. 
But he's, I think, backed away as a lot more competitors have come in and yields have come down. But there's only a couple funds that do it. Um, mutual funds are really expensive. Uh, one is called Stone something, Stone Hill or Stonecrest, and it's like 2% plus, you know. And there's another one from, it's not Frontier. Who is it from? There's another fund company that does it too. It would be perfect for a closed-in fund. But anyway, but you never cheer for obviously disasters, but it, that's what creates opportunities, of course. And so when you have this sort of washout where it would clear out a bunch of the cat bonds, people lost money, and then the rates go back up and you know it gets to a higher yielding return. But would love to see more development in that asset class. Did the reinsurers get tapped with Irma? That I don't think, I, I, I haven't really followed. I don't know. Because um, each, and this is obviously an area where due diligence matters because you have very specific criteria that will trigger. So it's like for some of them, it's the wind speed has to hit X as measured here over this period, you know, and others will be contingent upon all these other things. So you could have tons of losses and the the bonds still not pay out and, and vice versa. Anyway, but it's a good example of an asset class that's like a true asset class that's different. You know, if you're if you're an investor and you own a global portfolio or something, you say, yeah, I'm going to add corporate bonds to my stock bond portfolio. Well, that's not really doing anything. You're just adding more of the same. But, you know, adding something like a forest or a goat farm or catastrophe bonds, like those are don't correlate to each other whatsoever. And there's only a limited number of these. And, and that's probably one of the reasons that those funds have such a high management fee. But we would love to index it and do it. But there's only so many unique ideas out there like that. I think it was Arnott, maybe in his um, podcast, he made the the reference or the quote that um, in a bear market, all correlations go to one. But it's interesting, as you pointed out, that yeah, this truly would be an asset class that would have zero bearing at all. My, my favorite quote was a Stanford professor, and I'm blanking on his name, where he said, you know, in a crisis, money comes home. And, you know, when you talk about people losing money, they often will... They just want to be liquid and have access to that money. And, um, you know, for for a lot of the risky asset classes in something like an 08, which was like a, a deleveraging style bear market, they universally got sold because people wanted to, they needed, many people and institutions needed to free up that capital for other reasons. But the, the bear market that I envisioned that would cause a lot of people the most pain going forward in my mind would be a dual US equity US bond bear which you normally don't see right bonds usually diversify they have good batting average in the the really bad months in bear markets but you could foresee a scenario where that happened and that would cause a lot of people extreme pain it seems like that would be easy enough to sort of mitigate the pain simply by looking global but i guess that's just uh US investors are just too narrow minded largely in terms of what they consider as, you know, solid investments. Yep. Um, All right. Next question here. Uh, It's a quick one. Best practices for trading low volume ETFs. How do I catch accurate pricing and protect myself when buying and selling ETFs that do not trade much? So in general, it's easier for people to trade the super liquid stuff. You know, you trade shares of spiders, you're paying essentially no bid ask at this point. And you could put in probably a market order for 10 million and wouldn't move it at all. But recommendations always use limit orders. There's basically no reason to ever use market orders, you know, unless you're trading spider, like it just, it's laziness. So even if you put a a limit order for the offer, if you're going to buy, like it, it, 
to put in a market order, you're just asking for it. So one, that's always best practices. Two, if it's a liquid stuff, you know, you put in a limit order and just wait. Like so many people are so impatient. They're like, I have to get in right now. Well, you could wait an hour. You could wait a day or two. This, I was about to say this could take a day or a week or so but, too. You, have to you know, so it's a little, it's a little different. I mean, usually they get filled. I mean, if you're trading something that's tiny and has a million and in another way is to set some parameters for yourself. Say, look, I'm only going to buy funds that over a certain volume and AUM threshold. And lastly, if you're an institution or an advisor, you can almost always, I can't say always, you can never say always when you're SEC registered, but you can almost <laughs> always get in right at net asset value if you're trading 50,000 shares or more because the market makers can just do a, a new creation or redemption. So you could plop in $100 million tomorrow in an ETF that has $5 million. And we've actually seen this many times where a lot of these ETFs will go from you know, whatever it is to $800 million because, you know, a big seed trade came in or whatever. And we've, you know, we've done it. We've been on both sides of it. So, because they can just create and redeem new shares. Now, then it becomes, the, the spread becomes a function of the basket. So if you're trading frontier market bonds or frontier market stocks, it's going to have a wider spread than the SP 500. So then it's just a question of what the underlying basket liquidity is. The ETF could trade zero shares for 200 days in a row and then it could print a $100 million trade the next day and not affect net asset value one cent, right? So it's not the same way that a stock is. But if you're a retail trader trying to t trade 100 or 1,000 shares or an individual, just use limit orders. And if you even care about sweating it and you want to use market orders, then, then just stay in the top 20 ETFs by size. All right, simple enough. Here's a question about the pros and cons of uh, custom shops, financial services shops. Uh, the guy's asking about um, attacking on estate planning, tax and insurance help, uh, wealth management, and so on. He references 1.2% as being expensive or cheap. I was wondering maybe we take this in a slightly different direction, and maybe you can answer that from the perspective of, of Cambria. You know, right now we're primarily an ETF shop with a little bit of uh, money management as well. You know, how would you consider, or, or what would you be looking at? as you would evaluate adding on other ancillary services. I, I think tax. I might get my CFP, by the way. Not not for Cambria, because my nightmare would be working with clients with their financial planning. I would be really bad at it. They they would probably think I am also really bad at it, despite if I was good at it or not. But it's just out of, out of interest. Like I, I think it's a fascinating area that really would help anyone, you know, knowing more personal finance tips, tools, tactics. We're, we're going to have on a financial planner next week is a CIO, but financial planner for a big firm on the East Coast and talk about a lot of the intricacies of, of financial planning. Look, I, I think it's a huge value add. And we've had kind of the same message for the last 10 years we've been talking. We say, look, financial advisors, and you can go to the old Vanguard study, table stakes now are you have to be able to create a portfolio correctly, or at least, you know, that will pass the smell test. And it's now a commodity, you know, and we've mentioned this many times where you can get a ETF like we run for a 0% management fee or a portfolio like we manage portfolios for 0% as does Schwab. Schwab is kind of a caveat, but, but we do it for 0%. Schwab does it. I think maybe is it so far? Some other group is doing 0%, I think. Anyway, for buy and hold asset allocation, that's table stakes. It's now zero. It is literally worth zero. Th these are your competitors, Cambria, Schwab, et cetera. 
so the value add of an advisor is all the other things. It's, you know, one, the behavioral coaching to the extent that they do a good job of it, but the estate planning and taxes and all the other sort of trusts and structures to, to add value to a client's life. That's where the huge value is. And it is a huge value. So you have kind of these light financial planners like Personal Capital and Vanguard and Schwab who have essentially what I would call probably call center CFPs. You know, I mean, they're, they're probably, and I, I, I can't say for sure, but I think most people want, and most high net worth people want a dedicated, you know, relationship. They don't want to just have to call Vanguard and get some dude, right? So, but but the value of the call center is now 30 bips. Like that's the standard. You're, you're going to pay 30 bips for a call center advisor at one of these firms. But for like the true white glove, like the guys that are legit, I see no problem with paying 50 to 100 basis points. If they add value to your life and do all these things, that's awesome. But, you know, starting to pay more than that is is, I think, probably too much. How do you measure the difference between the 30 bit sort of turnkey and the, um, the, the higher end, uh, you know, white touch or white, glove? you know, I mean, it's, it's, it's like saying, how do you measure the difference between a good and a bad doctor? And it's hard to know. And, and, and a good and bad lawyer. I mean, I've had some of the world's worst lawyers, one of our buddies. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah. So, and lawyers, I love you. We spend more money on you guys than anything else in the world. So, um, but I mean, I've had some absolutely horrific lawyers personally as, as well as professionally and like it, finding a service provider is always a really challenging thing. So like financial management, for example, by the way, there doesn't exist a, a Yelp for financial advisors. And one of the main reasons why is financial advisors can't use testimonials. So you could build a site, but the problem with the way that most of the sites do it is that most of the sites will charge advisors for leads, but they can't have testimonials on there and the advisor pay for them because then the advisor, you know, it's just this big cluster stuff. But by the way, if you're listening and you figure out a way around all this and you want to build the Yelp for financial advisors that works, and I'm sure there's a way to do it, let me know. But, but so it's the same thing with finding a doctor for the problem for most people. You know, they ask their friends, they may look at some reviews online, they'll Google them, but eventually they try a couple, Right. And so same thing with financial planner, wealth manager, lawyer, et cetera. So it's hard and it's a very personal sort of environment, you know, where to find a good advisor, the same as finding a good doctor, find a good plumber, anything, it's worth its weight in gold. Like we have the best plumber on the planet. I love him. I, I would, you know, pay quadruple for this guy because he saves me time and money and he's much better. I've tried TaskRabbit. It's been a disaster. What is going on in your household where you have need for a repetitive plumber? I <laughs> uh, man, it's it's the, the house that I'm in. If there's an earthquake in L.A., there is no question that house is going down. <laughs> it, I, I am just knock on wood praying that the earthquake comes when I'm at work or when my family's out of the house because that thing was built. It's like on stilts. You you everything shakes like when a car goes by on the highway. Anyway. <laughs> So the plumbing, I think, is probably like a M.C. Escher painting behind the scenes. It's just, you know, <laughs> who knows? But, you know, so finding a wealth manager, it, it's tough and it's ways. So we've built Cambry as a pure investment manager up till now. Could I foresee adding us adding a private wealth division? Yeah, absolutely. But you can't really half-ass that. So 
you would want to add it to where you could really service people in the best way possible. And historically, it's just not something that I've thought about. Yeah. You know, and, and part of it is you would have to align with advisors that really bought into the philosophy of the money management, you know, and, and a lot of advisors will do bespoke portfolios or do their own thing and whatever, you know, they cobble together all these weird portfolios and they have a thousand different portfolios for the, all their clients. And so they're all, you know, it, it's, it's a little bit different animal. So it, it's, it's possible, but, and you know, and who knows? I mean, like you, you hear all these claims from like Wealthfront where they're, they're basically trying to replace the financial advisor with software and hey, power to them. But I, I, I don't see that happening anytime soon. I always find it interesting to hear from uh, financial planners who have clients who come to them with huge legacy holdings. And on one hand, you have a portfolio that you want to get them in because it might be positioned best for them. But then they're holding something that if they liquidate, they're going to have huge tax issues. And, you know, how do you and there's emotional issues sometimes you've been passing. There's down. always emotional issues. Yeah. It's, you know, how do you rotate them out of that stuff? It's 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 family. You know, it's it's in dealing with emotional issues is is what, what the challenges are. But but there's, you know, some as the generational transfer happens. It's I forget the statistic, the exact number, but shockingly low amount of people keep their advisor when divorced or parent Mm -hmm. dies. So a lot of advisors, best thing they do is cultivate the entire family. But but we're an investment management shop. So I mean, but like if I if I needed a bunch of work done on the financial planning side, you know, obviously we're in the industry and I know a lot of people I could call, but but it's not an easy on addition, because of the um, knowledge gap, it's not an easy process. I don't know. I mean, there, there's sites that are built around trying to help, but I, I don't know that it's any easier than finding a good doctor. Gotcha. All right. Well, we are pushing uh, 50 minutes here, and I don't like how white and pasty you're looking right now. I feel like you should go take a nap. That's because it was cold in Iceland. There wasn't a whole lot of sun. <laughs> It's just because I didn't get any sun, but I'm back to the land of 70 degrees. The Broncos are two and zero. All is right with the world. Your fantasy uh, team is doing pretty well right now. Well, I it's you know, I'm in three different leagues, and it just goes to show it's the exact same. I'm like two and zero in one, one and one in the other, and zero and two in the other. And I have almost the same exact team in all three, and it's just so much randomness, right? It's fun to play, but besides that, I I I don't spend any time thinking about it. More more excited about the Rockies, hopefully getting in the playoffs. All right. You're yeah. going to go to the game? I'd love to. I'd love to, depending on where they're playing. I, w- I went to a playoff game there once where it essentially just started snowing, <laughs> which I don't like you don't think of in baseball, right? Like a blizzard, but it, it was it was pretty miserable. All right. Anything else on your end before we uh, wrap this one up? You know, uh, if you're still listening to this point, I'm traveling a lot. So come say hi. It's uh, always fun to meet people. So I'd, I'll put it on the blog, but going to... Let's see, Orlando, New York twice, Amsterdam, San Diego, Los Angeles. Nicaragua. Nicaragua, maybe Switzerland. Hmm. And there's something else I'm forgetting. Colorado, of course, always there. Anyway, is that it? That's it. All right, listeners, thanks for taking the time to listen today. Send us more questions. I think Jeff is officially out of questions. So send some over. Well, the challenge is the questions generally are all somewhat similar thematically we get a lot of stuff about valuation trend questions so come up with some interesting new questions listeners as meb said before the weirder the better weirder the better you can find the show notes other episodes at mebfavor.com forward slash podcast subscribe to the show if you're enjoying it hating it please leave a review we read everyone i promise thanks for listening friends and good investing <laughs>